0: U.S. Senator John Thune says President Biden has hung out the welcome sign at the southern border. But what is really pushing people north? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Friday, May 12th. This is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk with the senator about immigration policy, the end of pandemic era policies, and immigration reform in progress. Can we get beyond the blame and to real solutions? We hear from a group of young leaders from Southeast Asia getting to know South Dakota for the first time. Plus, with so many choices for new music in front of you, why not have an industry professional help curate? Fresh Tracks is later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh, you're in the moment. May is National Bike Month, and some places also observe a Bike to Work Week. South Dakota begins its celebration next week with events and bicycle-related activities across the state. SDPB's Evan Walton
1: reports. Bike to Work Day began as a national event in 1956, sponsored by the League of American Bicyclists. Events are held each May to focus on bicycle awareness and safety. Events also promote healthy living and encourage people without a bike to get outside and be active. This year, the state's Bike to Work Week Runs from May 15th to 19th. Anne Dunkel is a volunteer board member for the Spearfish Bicycle Collective. She says local residents and participating businesses are looking forward to the events.
0: So we are hosting the Spearfish Bike to Work Week in celebration of Bike to Work Week with a few other uh, bike shops in Spearfish, like Two-Wheeler Dealer and Rushmore Bikes. There's going to
2: be lots of fun events um, happening from Sunday, May 14th to Friday, May 19th, all bike-centric fun activities and spearfish.
1: The City of Sioux Falls is collaborating with the group Falls Area Bicyclists on local events. They will lead rides during the week and are partnering with local businesses to provide goodies for participating cyclists. Sam Trebelcock is a senior planner with the City of Sioux Falls Planning and Building Services. He says the City has meetings planned throughout the week to focus on all modes of human-powered transportation. So who's included in those things? You know, people that are walking, jogging, people that are using travel
3: where they need mobility devices, people that have that some disabilities. We want to make sure all of them can safely and
1: comfortably get around the city. While the primary focus is on bicycles, the message is clear from participating cities and businesses. They're asking people to get out and to be active. Fletcher Laycock is an urban planner for the city of Sioux Falls. He acknowledges that some people will face obstacles, but he encourages everyone to do what they can. We recognize that a lot of people have either kids to drop off in the morning or errands to run and they can't bike into work. But if you could do something just one day during the week, either getting out, riding with your kids to to playground or something, just to, to experience what Sioux Falls has to offer. Whether you bike. Jog, walk, or visit some of the outdoor amenities your city offers, it's likely you'll see many people outside being active during the week. Event organizers also ask that drivers stay alert for an increase in bicycle and pedestrian traffic. Sioux Falls will host an open house style public meeting on Thursday, May 18th at 4 p.m. at the Downtown Library to discuss future bicycle and pedestrian needs. A full list of Sioux Falls events is at fallsareabicyclists.org. I'm SDPB's Evan Walton.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Latin American countries suffered during the COVID pandemic. Grief and loss, the ensuing supply chain crises, unemployment, extreme poverty and violence, authoritarian regimes, all of these factors have converged to make life in some places lawless, dangerous, intolerable. Tens of thousands of people from Central and South America have been making the arduous journey north, north toward countries like Mexico and the United States. As pandemic-era immigration policies expire, the systems to assist these families are by no means in place. We have been focusing this week on policies that might address the crisis, and the conversations have been complex and often discouraging. Is this a problem we are able to solve? Is this a problem we're willing to solve? I spoke with U.S. Senator John Thune yesterday. Let's begin when I asked him what he thought had, in a phrase, gone wrong.
2: I think a lot of it has to do with just, you know, there are a ton of policy changes, and part of the what really matters at the border is um, how people interpret the signals that are being sent from the United States. And I think the um, when the Biden administration took office, they changed a lot of the previous administration's policies and essentially, kind of opened up, put up a welcome sign. Um, you know, they did away with the uh, Remain in Mexico policy, which allowed a lot of the asylum cases to be adjudicated before they got to the United States, uh, or at least held there until they were able to get adjudicated here. And you know, they they basically um, ended uh, any kind of deportations. They they stopped building the wall. They uh there was um, you know the catch and release program uh, that they put in put into effect, I think is and and you know you've got the these long periods, um, the average now to get a case adjudicated in asylum case is over four years. So once somebody comes comes into the country and they turn them loose to get them to come back for their hearing is uh, you can about imagine you know forty four and a half years from now. How many people they're going to get to actually come back? So they just change a lot of policies, I think, that have led to the perception um, from people in uh, other parts of the you know, Central America, Mexico, that uh, the United States is open. And I think that's just uh, created in- incredible incentives and incredible incentives for a lot of the smugglers and cartels who take advantage of the, of the situation. And um, you know, whether it's uh, human trafficking or drug trafficking or weapons trafficking. Uh, are they they have really capitalized on that and we're making a lot of cartels really rich and um and in a lot of uh people become victims of that.
0: One of the things I find interesting about this conversation is we've had several conversations that there are a lot of facts that are not in dispute and a lot of criticism that's being levied at the administration that everybody seems to agree on with the timing. There are some things that people disagree on, but when I was looking into you know, why this push to the north um, you find stories of, you know, authoritarian regimes, crime, the pandemic, cholera outbreaks, uh, s- choked supply tra- chains wow. from the war in Ukraine, violence in places that there were there wasn't violence anymore. Is it fair to say that um, that President Biden has put up uh, a welcome sign? If he put up a do not enter sign, it seems like there would be millions of people fleeing. These situations in Venezuela and Colombia and Guatemala, Ecuador. Anyway, they have to get out.
2: There are lots of problems in other places around the world. Um, I think the, the the you know the challenge always is if we're going to import some of those problems into the United States, we need to have a an orderly process to do it. And they and they don't have that. I mean, I just think that they're overwhelmed. The border patrol is overwhelmed. They'll tell you that. And they aren't deploying the types of resources that the uh, Border Patrol folks tell us they need. When I've been down there, um, you know, a few times, they constantly say, one, let us, you know, allow us to enforce the law. Two, um, give us the three things that we need, which is manpower, technology, and infrastructure. Uh, and the administration just has not prioritized any of those things. Um, and, I, you know, I use it, you kind of have to look at what they do. Uh, even the Inflation Reduction Act last August, you know, when we added, you know, adding eighty-seven thousand new IRS employees, and <clears throat> and the Border Patrol, you've got a uh, uh, total all in, and we I think we figured out by twenty twenty-five or thereabouts, there was going to be one hundred and five thousand employees at the IRS, and more than five times that they that we allocate to cover in the entire uh, mileage along the southern border. So it's I just think it's uh, yes, they they have made there are lots of problems in the world and people for a lot of reasons come here for a better life but there are also um, decisions that have been made i think that uh... have created a lot of a very chaotic situation down there and there's a much more orderly structured way i think to go about this um, but it uh... you know it entails the, the administration changing some of their policies
0: i want to jump in and go back to something that you said because i know how these things work and this is the tweet that people will pull out of what you just said you said, uh, if we're going to import the problem, do you mean that these people are the problem?
2: Well, I don't think that it's, um, I, I don't think it, they're the problem, but there are problems that come with uh, a mass influx. And when, you're, when you've got them on this kind of scale, and this kind of volume, uh, people coming across the border, uh, a lot of them are coming here for a, a better life. Uh some aren't. You know, there have been eighty people who have been apprehended uh since the October one who are on the terrorist watch list. And when I was down there a couple of months ago they said there's almost a five hundred percent increase in the number of Chinese nationalists coming across the border or trying to come across the border illegally. So if you think about the national security threats that we face in the world today, whether that's China uh or you look at some of the you know the trafficking issues that we deal with here in the United States, uh um, or the fact that there are actually uh people on the terrorist watch list who are trying to come through the southern border, there there are reasons why it makes sense to try and deal with the problems. So, you know, no, most people aren't people are not problems, but um when when you've got an out of control and a chaotic situation it creates problems that are not manageable. And I think that um, the administration clearly has, in my view at least, uh, um, just been missing an action when it comes to doing anything meaningful to try and create a more orderly flow or a more orderly process by which we uh, uh, deal with a, a border that right now, arguably, by any any metric, is really out of control.
0: Does the U.S. have a legal and moral obligation to assist people who are refugees who are fleeing lawlessness?
2: I think there's... Um, it's, it's it, The U.S., I believe, does, um, and by multiples, uh, do more of, of that than any other country in the world. I mean, we give refuge to uh, asylums, to refugees from other parts of the world um, on, an, on an annual basis. I mean, we have people who come in by the thousands from other places around the world, but most of them come in. And there is an orderly process for getting people into this country and for uh, dealing with these asylum cases. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, clearly um, we all hope that we have a a responsibility and a duty uh, to try and prevent um, carnage, and uh, there are a lot of places where people are trying to escape. Um, But that's an entirely, I think, separate issue, different issue than all the other things that come with it. I think if you could deal with the asylum cases, and there was a process in place under the previous administration to get those cases, asylum cases, uh, at least processed or held or adjudicated prior to getting the southern border. As I mentioned, once they get here right now, um, it's over four years before their, their case is ever gonna get heard. And um, and it's unlikely in many cases that people are going to come back for the hearing in the first place. So I just think that there are uh, things that can be done to manage the flow, um, knowing full well that people are always going to want to come to the United States for some very good reasons. They want a better life for themselves and their families, and and there might even be a way in which you could, as people come into this country, uh, figure out a way to get them work visas. Uh, you know somehow. So they can start contributing if they're if they're going to be in this country, and um, but I, again, I think it uh, it takes a plan, and it seems to me at least administration has lacked a plan since the president took office, other than uh, the border, for all intents and purposes, is wide open.
0: So what I heard you say earlier was we need manpower, we need technology, we need the infrastructure. What I've heard other people say is we need a pathway so these people are working instead of just accepting humanitarian aid, we need education for their children and we need pathways for um, citizenship for more people. And everybody agrees that we need a foreign policy that creates more stability than we already have. When I have manpower, technology, infrastructure on one side, jobs, education, pathway to citizenship on the other side, what's the room for a compromise? Is it all the above? Is it here's the priority? Or is it a multi layered process to solve a really difficult problem that certainly goes back before President Biden's administration?
2: Somebody once described it as a, 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 big, a big wall and a big gate. Um, a big wall to discourage people from coming here illegally, but a big gate to, to get people in here that we need in our workforce. We're going to need the number I've heard is over about 2.6 million people annually. Uh, you know, in this country just to fill the jobs that we need to keep our economy growing at a 3% rate. Uh, and I think there are ways, like I said, orderly ways that you can, you can create to do that. And, and maybe even a minimum of people are going to come into this country and they are coming here even illegally once they're apprehended at the border. Maybe you give them a, some sort of a work visa or a work permit so that they can, um, you know, start to contributing to the country when they get here. But there is a difference in scale. Yes, this is a problem. It's been around for a long time. But if you look at the average per day uh, apprehensions at the border under the previous administration, it was 1,800. The average apprehensions at the border on a daily basis under this administration is 6,300. So it's uh, more than tripled. And now with Title 42 lapsing, um, they're expecting potentially up to you know 10, 15,000, uh, per day coming, trying to come across the border illegally. And, of course, these are the people that are apprehended, not those that, that actually get, get into the country illegally. So um, you've got to have—you know, we are a nation of immigrants, and I'm one and generation removed from that. I, I get it. But we're also a nation of laws. And first and foremost, what differentiates us from a lot of the other places around the world is we have the rule of law in this country. And we've got to enforce those laws. We, we need to do it in a humanitarian and compassionate way. And if people truly are seeking asylum and they're trying to gain refuge from persecution some other part around the world, um, the United States has always, uh, in, in terms of you know, relative to other countries around the world, Done multiples of of that uh, in terms of caring for people who who really need to to get out of a situation that would be you know life threatening and I uh, and there are a lot of places around there around the around the world as you point out today that represent that kind of a threat but there's got to be you can't we can't just we just can't have a wide open southern border it just it, that doesn't work and you know the the chaos down there right now is evidence of that.
0: Yeah. I'm not hearing, uh, for the record, anybody come to talk to me about a wide open border. I know you have to go one more question. Um, Watertown nun sister Helen was on the program, and she spoke passionately about her time da- down there. And she said, you probably have already heard from her in her in your office. She said, this is Congress's problem to solve. And what we're hearing is, you know, the president has failed. Talk to Sister Helen. What are you doing to solve this problem right now?
2: Well, I mean, I think obviously we're (laughs) we aren't um, we don't have a majority in the Senate at the moment. So we don't control what uh, comes to the floor if you were if, you know, she's thinking of some sort of a legislative solution to this. But I guess what I would tell you is, yes, we have, um, you know, different branches, Sister Helen, different branches, as I'm sure she knows of our government who have different responsibilities. And one thing I think when people exec, uh, you know, elect an executive, a president, uh, more than anything else, they want somebody that is competent to manage issues that has actually a plan to deal with um, challenges as they come up. And uh, uh, and all of the things that we're talking about here, yes, there are things that Congress could do uh, and should do, but there are, are these are all problems that are um, fixable simply by the administration of the President, uh, deciding to put the right policies in place. Like I said, he came into office and completely wiped out and negated the policies of the previous administration. Now arguably, 1,800 people coming across the border illegally on any single day, is a big number. That's the number that was, you know, like I said, the daily average in the Trump administration. Six thousand three hundred is multiples of that, and ten thousand, which is what it was, or eleven thousand, which is what it was on Tuesday, becomes very unmanageable. And you know, allowing Title 42 to lapse uh, gave took away one administ- tool the administration had, clearly that they could fix. Uh, And so we all have to do what we can do. It's not going to happen overnight legislatively. We know that uh, in a divided government. But we've got an administration that really, in my view, has not stepped up and had any sort of a plan to deal with what is a very, I think, is a a major crisis at our southern border. Just talk to the border states, and they'll tell you that.
0: I spoke with Senator Thune on the phone yesterday, and I misspoke during that interview. I said, Sister Helen has done humanitarian work at the border. What I meant to say was Sister Teresa, and I was referring to Sister Teresa Ann Wolf from Watertown. You can find our conversation with her on our website, sdpb.org slash news. You're listening to In The Moment. On South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm your host, Lori Walsh. The Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative Professional Fellows Program is back in South Dakota. The program hosts some of the best and brightest from the world and brings them to the Midwest for a few weeks. They learn from us, and we learn much more from them. Susan Hackamer is the Interim Director of Career Services at the University of South Dakota and coordinator of this program. She is with me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls now. Susan, welcome. Thanks for being here.
4: Thank you for having me, Lori.
0: Also with us, we have two of the fellows, Farisa Ahmad and Julio Castor Achmadi. Uh, Farisa is a doctor from Malaysia, and Julio is a lawyer from Indonesia, a human rights lawyer, I believe. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you you so much, Lori. All right, Susan, we're going to start with you and give uh, South Dakota listeners a broad view of what this program is and why it
4: matters. So the program is sponsored by the U.S. State Department and the Educational and Cultural Bureau or the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. So it's a fully funded exchange program. Um, it's the, that concept, the objective of people-to-people mm-hmm. exchange that we are all better and learning from that. And so the program um, brings, they, they, we try they are coordinated by the University of Montana, and then we are the host in South Dakota. So the University of South Dakota facilitates finding placements for these students that are not students; these fellows, these mid-career fellows, who that match their um, goals and their careers in their home countries. How long are they here for? They are here for four weeks. Four weeks, and
0: there's a whole lot of work that got that was done. Before their arrival and will be done and and hopefully connections that are lifelong, I would hope. Julio, tell us a little bit about your work as a human rights lawyer and why you wanted to be part of this fellowship.
5: Yeah, Lori. so back in Indonesia, I work as a human rights lawyer where I support the community of refugees. We have 14,000 refugees in Indonesia, and they're waiting in transit before they got resettled to many countries, including the United States. So one of the reasons why I applied for the YCL program is that for me to understand better how life for refugees will look like when they arrive in the United States. So I'm here with South Dakota Voices for Peace, where they have been connecting me with the community. They're also sharing their work about their advocacy against uh, racism and also anti people who are anti-immigrants and Islamophobic, so they can create a more inclusive society in South Dakota. And that relates a lot and resonates a lot with what I've been doing back in my home country in Indonesia.
0: How did you get interested in that kind of work, in just basic human dignity and being a voice for people who are you know there there are lawyers who are refugees so you are helping people who normally could help themselves in some cases and others who never could tell me why you got interested in that work
5: yeah so it's a long interesting story but uh in short um i wouldn't say as a human rights lawyer we are representing them we are working together with them because we know that they're capable they just don't have the platform yet to be able to voice and advocate for themselves, which is why human rights work. It's not entirely about representation, but it's about empowerment. So as human rights lawyer, the community can work together and advocate for their rights. What got me into this was because my ethnicity in Indonesia has been persecuted back in 1998, and we need to take refuge back then, including my family. So I guess it um, resonated a lot with what brought me up here and the thing that I've been learning growing up Um, to be able to connect with these communities who are vulnerable.
0: Yeah. All right. I want to talk more about what you've learned when you're here. Um, But Farisa, tell us a little bit about your work as a doctor and why you wanted to be part of this group.
6: Yeah, so I made it very clear um, when I applied for the fellowship, I really wanted to know what would happen on the other side of the world because I work specifically on refugee mental health and Malaysia is a transit country similar to Indonesia. So a lot of refugees end up coming to Malaysia with a lot of distress, coming from a war-torn country, trying to escape, trying to make sure their families are safe. So when they arrive in Malaysia, since they're not um, recognised, you know, as a refugee in Malaysia, even though they're registered with UNHCR. There are a lot of daily stresses they have to face. Um, you know, unemployment, not having access to education, not having access to healthcare, especially mental health. I think it's disheartening. You know, nobody should actually go through something like that. And back home in my organisation, it's based in the capital city of, of Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. We're currently the only organisation providing mental health support and treatment for the refugees directly. Um, so I do have a lot of patients who end up getting resettled to the USA. I always worry about them. You know what would happen, access to healthcare, access to mental health treatment and support once they get resettled. And what you read you know, on the internet is actually very different than how things are over here. So I'm very grateful, you know. um, I'm currently doing my um, attachment, my fellowship at LSS, specifically at the Center uh, for New Americans. I've learned a lot and I think I'll be able to sleep at night now knowing that my patients are safe. Regardless, if they don't end up in the USA or in any other resettled country, they're looked after very well.
0: Tell me what are things you can do early intervention for mental wellness when there is so much trauma, are there things that can be in place? I mean, some of it is um, maybe not possible from a funding standpoint or what have you, but if you could put in early intervention for mental wellness or mental health issues for refugees and and displaced people, what are some of the things that would be effective?
6: Yeah, I think empowering them to be able to <clears throat> identify their signs and symptoms, it's very important. And a lot of people do not have early access to information, um, including due to language barrier, um Including cultural differences back home People don't talk about mental health You know, the stigma around it is, is is very big And I feel like community-based intervention Having a very strong support system Just within the community itself It's super important Especially if you want to tackle something very early You might be able to connect with your neighbours Just someone next door, you know If you don't see someone for two days take the initiative to actually check on them like, hey, I did not see you for two days. Are you all right? Do you need help with something? Do you need someone to talk to? It can just be as simple as checking on someone. And there's no better way starting from a community, really.
0: Yeah. What yeah. drew you into this work?
6: Um, I think I like the challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, working in mental health is difficult. <laughs> working in <laughs> refugee mental health is it's totally on another level And back home in Malaysia We don't have a lot of people working in the field It's a very small field People end up knowing each other Trying to support You know, their level best um, I think being able to have a passion and a purpose When you work on something It's very important And it is something I look forward to every morning Because I know I'm going to perhaps help someone Or benefit a community as a whole
0: Yeah um, Julio what have you learned from South Dakota that you think is, the rises to the top of this is different than what I expected to find? Let's start there.
5: Wow, That's a good one. So I feel like um, I've been so i'm glad I'm glad that I've been connected with communities. And what I've seen here with the people from Sioux Falls and South Dakota, whenever they find problems in the community, what they do is they immediately gather. So there's a sense of strong solidarity between all of these organizations that are working to support the community, and including these communities to be able to address the problems. So they come in so flexibly; they fill in the gaps. Of course, each organization has its own strength and its own weakness. So they discuss immediately what kind of support do we need to uh, do? We need to muster to support this community. What kind of gaps need to be filled? What kind of advocacy that we need to tackle? Um, uh, for the best interest of the community. So I guess that flexibility has struck me so greatly because back in my home country, it's a bit more difficult to gather people because, of course, refugee issues in Indonesia, they're not a majority issue per se. So most, even for most Indonesian organizations that are working on human rights as well, they are not well first about the issues around refugee. So this this is why it is important to then... um, see the intersectionality of refugee issues in many other human rights issues.
0: We had trouble figuring this out even this week as Mm. we talked about immigration at the U.S. southern border and Mm -hmm. the end of Title 42. The definitions people are throwing out, the idea of what is a universal human right, what do asylum seekers have the rights to, I got very different answers from different people Uh about (laughs) this Help us provide some insight into some of the international basics. What is human dignity and what rights do people have? What gets overlooked?
5: Right. So um, I guess... <laughs> Explain of it. Of course. It's <laughs> a big, <laughs> enormous
0: yeah. question. Okay.
5: Yeah. I'll try.
0: 101 with Julio today.
5: <laughs> I'll try.
0: Tell me how the brain works <laughs> and you tell me how uh, international human rights work. I'll just sit
6: back. All Season right. We'll take notes. We'll take notes. <laughs>
5: I'll try. So when someone is uh, experiencing persecution based on you know, racial discrimination, nationality discrimination based of their political belief, religion, and also being a part of a vulnerable group in their home country and they got attacked for that, they usually want to find safety. And that is where countries who are signatory to the 1951 Convention and also 1967 Protocol of Refugee Convention would be able to provide them those protection. So just to give an example, in Indonesia and Malaysia, we are not signatory to the convention. Mm -hmm. So the government thinks that they don't have responsibilities to protect these refugees. Whereas we know that these countries as well, they are signatory to many human rights core international conventions, such as ICCPR, ICSER, CEDAW for women, CRC for children. And refugees have all of them, right? Refugees have women in it. Refugees have people with disabilities in it. Refugees have LGBTQ people in it. So... It is very intersectional, and it's not a separate issue from other human rights issues. But within the refugee community, there are a lot of issues regarding human rights. So when they come here, especially in a place that should have protected them greatly, before them, they were not protected in transit country, and before them as well, they were not protected in their own country. But here, my experience in South Dakota, I've been um, communicating with several refugee communities as well here, they are still finding problems. They are still finding that South Dakota is not yet very inclusive. South Dakota can improve their views and support from the overall community to this refugee community. So it's a situation as well about housing, about right to work, about mental health, about health in general. So we know that refugees keep on facing different challenges in various phases of their life, from their home country, fleeing to a transit country, and even when they are being resettled. So that is a long way for these refugees to build and able to feel safe.
0: Yeah. Uh, Doctor, you said you found some things that n- made you feel positive as well. What are some of the unexpected things you've discovered so far here in South Dakota?
6: I would say the support given, because um, I'm currently attached at LSS, mm-hmm. um, the support given literally covers everything from getting their green card, um, going for English classes, you know, because it is a requirement for you to be able to speak and understand English. Where back home, a lot of people perhaps found it like, oh, I will learn perhaps when I get there. And when they come here, perhaps it's a bit too late for them to adjust. It's not easy to just learn up English in a few weeks. Um, English is not my first language. I had to learn through it, um, you know, since I was in kindergarten. Um, Having the right agency you know to support you throughout different stages of the process when you're new in the country one thing that was a wake-up moment for me is back home in Malaysia when someone gets resettled as a patient we are very happy for them you know they assume once they get resettled they are a citizen of this new country immediately without knowing that there are some other processes they have to go through. Um, It is worrying to me, um, you know, that how are they going to adapt in a very short period of time? Um, I wouldn't say the expectations on them are high, but having the right support, I think I'm just repeating myself again, having the right support is very important. And at LSS, everything is sorted out for you. All you have to do is just reach out to them. If you need housing, they look they look for a safe place for you. If you need employment, job opportunities, they find something that is suitable for you. If you need kids to be in school, they find everything. They sort out everything for you. All you need to do is ask. Support and help is literally everywhere. And people at Sioux Falls are amazing. Not just to the refugees, really. Um, I think us fellows, you know, we we have touched base. We have connected with a lot of amazing people. Um. I wouldn't have known if I wasn't sent here. Honestly, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Susan, uh, we're I'm learning so much. I know our listeners are learning so much. The benefit to us for having the fellows come
4: talk about that for a minute. Well, I mean, I think your listeners. I mean, this is amazing, right? Just right, the depth yeah. of their understanding and that ability to be able to compare systems and see the similarities and understand the weaknesses and um, just that's such a so important for human nature and working in an education field. You know, I just hope that all of the placements that our fellows have been in, if we send an intern to those places, then that place has been being made better before. They have more that their hosts can offer to our students. It just feels like yeah. there's so many different benefits. For okay, us. let's be silly for a minute. Good, good <laughs> food mm-hmm. that you've tried here. Uh, I well, knew, it. It. <laughs> <We> <laughs> knew it. We
0: expected it. We knew it. I've asked, I've asked a boring <laughs> question. Oh, my God. Bad host.
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> do you want to start, Reza?
6: <laughs> um, honestly, I have avoided taking American fast food. The reason why yeah, is because well. we do have a lot of options back home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've tried... Um, Brazilian food that was something okay. really yummy. Uh, we we don't get you know uh, certain certain kind of food easily back home in Malaysia. Uh, we went to Roots of Brazil if I'm not mistaken just down here. I think that was my favorite meal. Yeah. I mean it's not American of course, but you know just having the flavors exchanging she in the it palate it in yeah. yeah it's it's amazing. F- <laughs> f- favorite
0: meal?
5: Well, um, I would say I've been to Mama's Ladas and yeah. also La Luna Cafe. Both of them are run by a lot of <laughs> Involvement of immigrants. We're, we're
0: big La Luna fans here. You are? it's right yes. down yes. the street. Yeah. Mm. There's a lot of that. exchange between yeah. La Luna and SDPBs. You know, yeah. we support them economically.
5: Yeah, for, well, that's good. That's good. Yes. Exactly. That is also Great why food. I would yeah. want to support yeah. these uh, businesses as well because they're immigrant-run, they're... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know being inclusive in the way they run their businesses yeah. but you know Indonesia we have a lot of spices that maybe <laughs> foods in America uh, <laughs> do not have so yeah it's a bit int- of interesting question True. when we want to compare of course it, it doesn't need comparison but yeah. I mean yeah. favorite, favorite
0: thing you've seen outdoors a, a view that you like something oh. you saw outdoors that you remember was last week yeah would you want to say that <laughs>
5: Yeah, we went to Black Hills and also Badlands and uh, Mount Rushmore. So, yeah, we were having so much fun. The views were mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. We couldn't help but just take a lot of pictures until our memories are full on our phones.
6: (laughs) It was was amazing, really. Like, just driving through the countryside, you know, daydreaming. And you're like, are you in the moment? Yeah, (laughs) you don't
5: see a lot of skyscrapers. You don't see any buildings. It's just, you know... A big, white view. Land, yeah, yeah. flatland. It goes
6: yeah. on and on. <laughs> it yeah. goes on and on. I love yeah. the journey.
5: I love the driving here. I think I know why Americans love driving so much when yeah. they travel interstates. Yeah. Yes.
0: It has been a delight to have you stop by here. And if you have just tuning in at the end, we've been talking with members of the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative Professional Fellows Program. Susan Hackmer is Interim Director of Career Services at the University of South Dakota and coordinator of this program. And our guests have been Farisa Ahmad and Julio Castor Achmadi. Farisa is a physician from Malaysia, and Julio is a lawyer, a human rights lawyer from Indonesia. Thank you so much for stopping by. Enjoy your time. Thank you so much, Lori, for having us.
4: Thank
5: Thank you. you.
0: Starting on Monday, we are bringing you a week of shows dedicated to South Dakota science, research, and some pretty spectacular South Dakota scientists. The history you'll hear from us next week will tend toward the prehistoric. So... Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. After a committee of South Dakota veterans attended the first national meeting to organize the American Legion, it was on May 15th in 1919 when they created a provisional South Dakota American Legion at Vermillion with Theodore Johnson of Sioux Falls as chair. Vermilion is now the home for American Legion Post No. 1. The Vermilion Post's namesake is Colonel Elmer Wallace. He was an Elk Point native who was killed in battle during World War I. Now, the idea for the American Legion organization was offered in March 1919, and members of the American Expeditionary Force were meeting in Paris for the first American Legion caucus at the close of World War I. Their intent was to create an organization to improve troop morale. Two months later, in early May, a caucus was held in St. Louis, and the American Legion was adopted as the organization's official name. The American Legion was then chartered by Congress later in 1919 as a patriotic veterans organization. The American Legion mission is this, to enhance the well-being of America's veterans, their families, our military, and our communities, by our devotion to mutual helpfulness. The American Legion is the nation's largest wartime veterans service organization, and there have been many milestones for this organization in the last century. In 1921, a Legion-led effort resulted in the creation of the U.S. Veterans Bureau, which later became the Veterans Administration. But its most notable accomplishment came in 1944. The American Legion wrote the first draft of what later became the GI Bill of Rights. But it was on May 15, 1919, when a committee of veterans created the provisional South Dakota American Legion and sent in the official application a month later to establish a post in Vermilion. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. More in the moment is after the break on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Welcome back to In the Moment on listener-supported SDPB Radio. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Happy Friday. Well, listen around. There is a large variety of new music and artists to experience. If you could buy or collect anything you wanted, what would you include in your own ultimate music library? Let's go to this week's Fresh Tracks. David Hirsrud has years of experience in the music industry, a lifelong passion for discovering new music, and he's got some suggestions for an ultimate music library.
7: You posed an interesting question. You can't buy everything, and if you can't, what should you be looking at? I was referring back
3: to thinking back in the early 70s when I was... uh, living in Chicago, and I started doing some writing for a music publication called Psych Scene. And I started a column that addressed the question of what should I buy? We called it the ultimate music library. Albums you had to have in your library. Kinks, Jefferson Airplane, Surrealistic Pillow, Laura Nero, Eli and the 13 Confession, Bob Dylan, Rod Stewart, Cream, Van Morrison, Sly and the Family Stone, and the Rolling Stones. I mean, and I could go on for an hour, and I'm sure yeah. you could
7: join in. Back in those same days, you and your wife used to play Pick a Hit. I get the impression from some of the stories you've told, she might have been better at it.
3: <laughs> you ought so, to know something so, she was.
7: <laughs> so I hope she's given you some advice, because basically what you want to do today is, what if you were making that list of ultimate music, today, who would you look at? And you're you're starting off with two tremendously talented women in Larkin Poe. They've got a new album that came out uh, last fall called Blood
3: Harmony. They were originally a bluegrass Americana band. They're called the Lovell Sisters. There was Rebecca, Megan, and an older sister, Jessica. Jessica got engaged and wanted to attend college. I think what surprised everybody that Megan and Rebecca decided to carry on. They changed from doing bluegrass Americana to doing Americana roots and rock.
2: Pull my wishes out of that
3: well. Punch my ticket.
1: Ring of that bell.
3: And I gotta tell you something, these ladies have been incredibly Terrific. They've done seven albums, six EPs, and in fact, they, <laughs> they picked up the name the Little Sisters of the Almond
1: Brothers.
3: I think this is this is one band when you take a look at doing seven albums and six EPs and to be able to provide the kind of music that they do. I would put them in the ultimate music library Mm -hmm. right
7: away. They are able to incorporate what my ear hears as rather common licks on a guitar or common musical themes, but to do it in such a way that it's brand new, not everybody can do that or wants to, but to me it really sets their music apart as being easy to identify with, but at the same time very individually creative.
3: Well, I think you nailed it. That's exactly what these ladies are. I hate
0: the way you look. Getting smaller in my view.
3: Megan and Rebecca incredible musicians in their own right.
7: Well, next on that list is someone that we talked about just in the last episode. Boy, Genius, refresh us on the background of who is making up this group and what they're bringing to it.
3: I am not a big fan of supergroups, and that's how they classify boy genius.
5: Black hole opened in the kitchen.
3: However, one thing I found out is when the joy of creating great music prevails, problems dissipate rather quickly. That's the beauty of boy Genius. It's Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus, probably three of the best singer-songwriters in the game today. met as fans of each other's music and decided that they were going to record a song, one song together. They had so much fun doing it that they decided that they were going to do more. Their new album called The Record is the result. It's a- they're going to be around for a while uh, because I think they, they simply enjoy doing this. In fact, somebody made the comment in one of the articles I was reading that said that they probably enjoy making music together more than they do making their own solo albums.
7: But, you know, at the same time, I mean, what an opportunity if you, if you feel comfortable with who you are as a creative musician, as a songwriter, getting together with two others who have similar talents who you uh, admire it isn't something that you have to do it's something that you want to do
0: you said you wanted to feel alive so we went to the beach you were born in July
7: talk about them being around for a while neither of the three of them is named David Crosby. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) You know that thing blew up because of internal issues. This is a real raw graphic musical sound and also a pretty raw graphic lyrical sound too if you listen closely.
3: This music if you listen to it it sounds so fresh. It's an album that you want to play over and over and over and over again which I think is one of the reasons why I think it should be in the Ultimate uh, Music Library.
7: And that's something that we're going to do over a a few episodes and and off and on, is what would that updated Ultimate Music Library include? Some suggestions that you might want to consider. Larkin Poe. And also, the record is the song that's out to great acclaim by Boy Genius, and there's got to be much more to come. Our musical guide, as always, David Herzruth. Thank you, David.
3: Hey, good listening.
0: You can find and share our fresh track segments on our website sdpb.org/music. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Next week on In the Moment, we are bringing you a week of South Dakota science. We've gathered some of our favorite conversations with researchers, scientists, and innovators from prehistoric history to the mysteries of dark matter. That is all coming up on next week's In the Moment. If you miss the show, you can always tune in to the podcast. Download the In the Moment podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All kinds of platforms for you there. You can also find a lot of our interviews on our YouTube channel. In the Moment producers are Ari Youngeman and Ellen Kester. Our executive producer is Kara Hetland. SDPB's news director is Josh Chilson. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.